One day, pride and humility met on a street corner. They had a discussion. Pride was, well, pride was filled with hope. Our pride was filled with pride, excuse me. Humility was different. Humility revealed the heart of Jesus. Let's listen in on their conversation. I am pride. I like to put other people down to make me feel better about myself. I'm humble. I'm not perfect. I often fall short, but I try. Jesus has made me a better person. Humility, you are weak, you are not smart, and you are a failure. People like you should not exist. In fact, why don't you do all of us a favor and go away? Pride, I'm sorry you feel that way. I hope you are happy. I, I only want the best for you. If I can ever help you, just let me know. What? What are you talking about? I don't need your help. I am happy. I am on top of the world. Why would I need anything from you? You know, I, I know you're a good person, and I, I can see your success, but I also see God working in your heart. God has big plans for your life. I am a good person. God knows it. I know lots of scripture, including John 3, 16, for God so loved me that he sent his son for me. <laughs> I also make sure to pray. You know, I have to make sure that I tell God exactly what I need him to do for me. And if, you know, I have some loose change in my pockets, I'll throw it in the offering plate. You see, I'm not like those other people at church. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. You know, I'm, I'm sure God appreciates all that you do. He knows your heart. Me, well, I depend on Jesus. Not, it's not only because of Jesus that I have been made right with God. Without Jesus, I'm nothing. I don't deserve the blessings that God gives me, but I am so thankful. Oh, humility, no. See, I get exactly what I deserve. <laughs> you probably will. At this time, the kids can go out with uh, Carolyn and uh, Bonnie and whoever for our Connect Kids and give them a round of applause as well. When pride comes face to face with humility, it's, it really is a picture of contrast. Pride shows its true self, its ugly, self-serving self. The beauty of humility shines through. As Emily and, and Jordan demonstrated in our short drama, pride is often characterized by arrogance. Humility is characterized by love and servanthood. Humility isn't weak. Humility knows the source of its strength, Jesus Christ. 
I would guess we've all met our share of arrogant, pride-filled people. We might have worked with them. Maybe we worked for them. Such people are selfish. They believe stepping on others to get what they want is a sign of their strength. Their arrogance won't let them admit their shortcomings are their failures. They crave power. Their pride is like a, a hungry lion, lion seeking to devour whatever feeds its appetite. Sadly, some churches have an attitude of pride. These churches might appear successful. They might seem to be doing the work of the Lord, but they are what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, but they're filled with nothing but death on the inside. And we're to pray for such churches. We're also to pray that this church has a humble attitude. You might have also met in a church some arrogant, pride-filled people. And that's particularly sad because we are called to humility. Some pastors, through their pride, have reached famous stature. They were on TV. And their pride can lead to their failure. And when such pastors fail, it makes the headlines. They destroy their congregation, their staff, and even themselves. But the fact is, you and I are called to something better. We're called to humbly serve people in the name of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if we're honest, every one of us struggles with some level of pride. We might look at our accomplishments, we look at our possessions, and we see them as a, a record of our success. Our picture of success can become distorted. We can be filled with pride. But Father, we want to be more like Jesus. We seek to demonstrate his humility. Still, even when we're humble, we wonder if we're taking pride in our humility. It can be hard. We are so close to doing what is right. And so we ask you to be with us today. Be with this church. Be with other churches, their congregations and their pastors. May we learn what humility looks like from Jesus. May we possess the spirit of humility. We desire to give life through you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is the last of our four-week series titled Life-Giving Churches. And this series is based on several devotions that were written by Pastor Mike Shields. He's our Central District EFRI superintendent. Way back in the first week of the series, we said this. We said, Jesus gives life. He gives life today and for eternity. Throughout the gospel, when Jesus showed up, amazing things happened. The sick were healed. The blind regained sight. The marginalized were given hope. The dead were raised and sins were forgiven. And as we model Jesus, our church is to be a place of life. Our churches be a place where people come to get recharged. Churches provide the conduit for hope. Church is where we serve and grow. Church is to be something that people look forward to each and every week. And church, our church is to be in the community, serving and loving and sharing the life-giving truth of Jesus Christ. A life-giving church 
boldly loves. It offers compassion to the hurting. It presents the gospel. It presents the truth of Jesus Christ with simple clarity. And a life-giving church is also characterized by humility. Some churches lack humility. In one of his devotions, Mike Shields listed several signs that a church might lack humility. And here are a few of those signs. First, rather than being a loving presence in their community, this church might expect the community to come to them. People in the church that lacks humility can be heard saying things like, I'm not being fed, or I can't worship here. And the key is they're making it all about themselves. You hear the words, my church, or my ministry on Sunday mornings. Again, this can be a sign that the church lacks humility. Leadership in the church sees their role as being the ones in charge instead of leading as servants. And then finally, fifth, in churches that lack humility, generations, both young and old, do not consider the needs of other generations, but instead they insist on their own way. Churches that lack humility are inward focused. They're all about themselves. They're to the center of their world. Now, I do want to stop here because I want to say one thing. Being proud of the church that you attend, being proud of Bethesda, isn't bad. But possessing an attitude of pride is bad. Now, again, these signs of a church lacking humility are, are not my comments. They're coming from a pastor who's involved in overseeing the churches in three states. He's seen it enough to know. He knows what he's talking about. And the fact is, it's hard to hear. Every church, every single church, because we're made up of sinful human beings, exhibits some of these traits. And every church can improve through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, though, we're going to focus on something more positive. Using Philippians 2 passage that was just read by Jordan, we're going to look at some signs of a humble, life-giving church. The foundation for such churches comes from the first couple verses of Paul's words in Philippians. We read this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? In the ESV translation, those statements that I just read begin each one of them with if, as in if there is any encouragement and if there is any comfort and love. And as you hear that, you might be wondering, is Paul kind of asking a, a yes or no question here? You know, the, the idea is if they had encouragement, if they had comfort, if they had these other things, they would answer, well, yes, we do. It, it might be like me saying to you on a Sunday morning, do you like the worship service? Do you enjoy the people that are here? Are you excited about what God is doing through this church? And as I ask those questions, I'd be hoping that you would say yes, to which I would respond, well, that's great, then please invite some of your friends to join us. But, but Paul's if statements here in this passage are not what they appear to be. Paul wasn't asking a question. A, a better word than if or is would be the word since. 
Paul was saying, since you find encouragement from belonging to Christ, since you find comfort from his love, and since you enjoy fellowship and together in the Spirit, and then after he did that, he continued, and he said this. He said, then make, my, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Paul was encouraging the, the people in the church to love each other and to work together with one purpose. A couple verses later, Paul wrote this. He said, you should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That is how the church at Philippi could make Paul's joy complete, how they could make him happy. And it's also our response to the blessings that we've been given. You see, at this point, Paul was building a foundation for the, what he was going to say next in the passage. And the foundation was the basis for developing an attitude of humility. And we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at what practical humility looks like in a church like ours. These practical insights will also apply to our individual lives as we leave here and go out to do life on a Monday. In churches that practice humility, the church leaders take credit for failure. You might be wondering, did he say what I thought he said? Um, is, is that a, a typo up on the screen there? Let me say it again. In a church with an attitude of humility, the leaders take credit for all the failures. And we hear that and we know that goes completely against human nature. In the business world, when there is a failure, the leaders typically look for somebody else to blame. They do it all the time. The thinking goes this way. If I'm a boss and I admit failure, I may not be a boss for very long. So more often than not, I don't admit failure. The fear of admitting failure goes beyond business. Our Congress does it. The president does it. Politicians are experts at shifting the blame for failure. And if you don't believe me, just watch the news. Pick your crisis. The southern border, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, inflation, the Ukraine, the handling of COVID, or, or whatever. The president and those in Congress will never admit failure. And throughout the last decade, we admit we've had our share of failures. Now, now before you think I'm picking on any one person or any particular party in particular party, let me say this. It doesn't matter which side of the table you sit on. In politics, failure is unacceptable. So that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, admitting failure in politics rarely happens. Paul wrote then in verses 3 and 4, he said this, he said, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now Paul didn't directly say it here, but in not trying to impress others, in thinking of others as better than yourselves, and not looking out for your own interests, all that makes it much easier to admit that you failed. Selfish people rarely admit failure. 
Prideful people rarely admit failure. People who want to impress others won't admit that they messed up. Now, on the other hand, though, those looking to the interests of others, they won't shift the blame to them. But sadly, it happens all the time. I came up with a few great ways to avoid admitting failure. Teens in the, in the choir loft, this is an easy one for you. If you fail at anything, blame your parents. Or husbands, if your, your marriage is experiencing trouble, blame your wife. Or wives, you could flip the table on this one and blame your husband. After all, he's more likely the one responsible, right? Workers, blame your boss when you get let go. All of us blame the government for all our woes. Now, parents can do damage to their kids. One spouse can ruin a marriage. Sometimes you get let go from a job for no good reason. And government certainly can fail fail us. But we have to admit there are other times that we fail. Teens make mistakes. A husband or wife need to get their act together. Sometimes you get let go from a job because you were doing a poor job. And yes, we, we, we the people, voted for those in political office. In the church, though, when we admit failure, it can have a somewhat surprising effect. And that effect is unity. Unity. Paul said we're to love one another and work together with one mind and purpose. When we're honest about our failures or any shortcomings, it can actually serve to bring people together. And if we're united, guess what? We share in the responsibility for our failures. In fact, next week we're beginning a message series on 1 Corinthians. And the title of our series has been kind of showing up on the screen and other places for several weeks. The title is this, Together. We will be focusing on church unity, working together. Now, if a a humble, life-giving church has leaders that take credit for the failures, who gets credit for the success? Is it the leaders? No, I saw somebody pointing up back there. It's God. In churches which demonstrate practical humility, God is the one who gets credit for success. 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul says this. He said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10 reads, But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. God gets the credit. We're to boast in the Lord. Jesus saved us. We couldn't have saved ourselves. 
I've got a little exercise for us all to do this morning. I want you to just take a moment and think about your three greatest successes or maybe your three greatest blessings that you've experienced in your life. The three greatest successes. You had a role to play in all those, but God made those successes happen. God is the one that offered the blessings to you, and so thank him. And while you think about your three greatest successes, here are three successes God has blessed me with. might be similar to what you have. The first one is my kids. This includes my biological kids and what I would call my adopted kids and grandkids. I'm blessed to have such a great family. I've got great parents. They're amazing. My kids fill my day with joy. I I don't know what I would do without them. They challenge me to be a better man. The second success is this congregation and our church staff. You know, if you would have told me 20 or 25 years ago that I'd be standing up here serving as your pastor, I would have thought you were crazy. But God made it all work out perfectly. Your Bethesda staff, the people that I get to work with, they are great. We're a team. They are amazing servants of the Lord. And God bless this church with all of you. This church has a spirit of family. It's a strong spirit. And God gave it to us. And then finally, one of my third, my third greatest success is my wife, because you know what? If I forgot my wife, it would be a long, long ride home today. Mary is my biggest fan. She supports me even when I'm a knucklehead. I don't deserve her, and I realize that she's a gift from God to me. And like all husbands, I sometimes forget to thank God for my wife. You see, any success that we have in life is from God. Any blessing we have is from God. We, we used to sing a song um, called the doxology every week during our 9 a.m. service. It, it's a reminder to us of where our success originates. The doxology begins with these words. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. A humble person or a church leader gives God the credit for all the successes they experience, all the blessings that they're given. The humility of a life-giving church is also seen in servant leadership. Paul wrote that we should not try to impress others, we're to think of others as better than ourselves, we're to take an interest in the needs of others. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, he said, it shall not be so among you, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus turned the world upside down. The Son of God washed dirty feet. Jesus came to serve. Jesus gave his life for us. And we're to serve others as well. Leadership. Leadership in your home, leadership in your business, leadership in the church is not a privilege. It's a call to serve. The best leaders are the ones ones that I have worked with. The best leaders are the ones who are willing to get their hands dirty. They're willing to work alongside everybody else. But then there are other so-called leaders who want everybody to know that they're the leader. 
They want to be elevated above other people. And I would say, who would want to follow someone like that? Churches that give life to those who walk through their doors are different. And people see it. And I think they see it when they walk through the doors of this church. Instead of the pastor being the top dog, the pastors actually should be on the bottom. And it's the same with everyone in life-giving churches. People serve. They love each other. They're willing to do whatever it takes in the church to further the mission of God through that church. They serve others, and in doing so, they serve God. In those humble, life-giving churches, we can't forget that Jesus is exalted. In verses 10 and 11 at the end of our passage from Philippians, Paul wrote this. He said, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's all about Jesus. Life-giving churches put Jesus first. People who give life put Jesus first. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's easy to understand. Jesus is to be the center of our life and the center of this church. And as this church and we as individuals seek to be the conduit to which God gives life to those around us, to our community, we're going to follow Jesus' example of humility. Paul wrote it very clearly. He said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, something to grasp. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. If we have the same attitude that Jesus had, that means that we take credit for our failures, or any failures. We give credit to God for success. We serve. And we exalt Jesus. The more we as individuals and this church known as Bethesda humbly imitate Christ, the more God will use us to give life. You know, we got our congregational meeting after this service, and I always give a report, and I've got some numbers and statistics in there, and you know, in the church, often we look at numbers. We look at how many people are in the building on a Sunday morning, what the church budget is, are we meeting that budget. We look at how many kids are here on a morning. And all those are important. But I'd argue they're not the most important. See, God looks at the heart of the people attending church and leading the church. God looks at the lives that are changed through the church by his power. And if we humbly pursue Christ, God will give life through us and through this church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son 
to die for our sins, to make a way for us to be reconciled to you. But we also thank you that he came in humility. He was born in a manger. He lived in a time when the world was a dirty, hard place to live. He washed feet. He walked everywhere he went. He took abuse. And then he died the most horrible death a person could die. And in doing so, he taught us humility. Father, it's easy to be pride-filled. It's easy to be proud of our humility. It's hard to be humble. And so this morning, we just ask that you would teach us humility. That we'd realize that humility is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of knowing that our strength is in you. And so I pray that you would be with this church today. That as we are still early in 2022, that we would be a church that gives life. That we tell people about your son. That we love others. That we show compassion. Father, we owe it all to you. And we pray the words that are commonly called the Lord's Prayer. We say them together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us into, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. If you're able, please stand as our worship team comes forward to lead us in our closing song.